Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of events in person and online, including on November the 30th, Andrew Yang in conversation with Frank Di Stefano. Coming up on the show today, Bruce Jones, director of the Project on International Order and Strategy at Brookings, and author of the new book, To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. Uh, Bruce, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me on. So congratulations on the new book. And as you, you start the book, actually, in a very surprising place, uh, not on the ocean seas, but actually in the middle of the Amazon. Yeah, it was an odd place to start a book. And in fact, the, you know, the first two locations are the Amazon and then a cave inside a mountain, both of which seem unusual. But it was, it was actually in the Amazon that this book really started to come together for me. I'd been spending a lot of time thinking about geopolitical rivalry, the kind of mounting tensions with China, the rise of the quote-unquote rising powers, Brazil. I'd written a book on energy flows. I was thinking about climate change. And uh, it occurred to me that where I was, every time I was thinking about these issues, I found myself spending time thinking about the oceans. And then I was in the middle of the Amazon, and we, we went on for a trip onto the river itself. And lo and behold, what do I see steaming up the, up the river? But a container ship with containers from Maersk Company in Copenhagen, which I which had recognized. And it just crystallized for me quite how important sea-based trade was to globalization, to the phenomenon of the rising powers, and thus to the changing contours of, of geopolitics. And, and so the book flowed from there, in a sense. Yeah, and, and as you point out, once you start looking for those sea containers, you notice them everywhere because they are an instrument of global trade and a, a symbol of how bulk shipping has completely transformed global trade. They're the instrument of global trade, and uh, bulk shipping now accounts for 85% of global trade. And I think, you know, it was a, a phenomenon that was somewhat invisible to, to all of us, I think, especially in the United States. Uh, and it's been extremely interesting over the last few months to watch first the um, the ever given uh, crash in the Suez Canal, which captured people's attention, and now even more so the container blocks, uh, sort of the backups at the Port of Los Angeles, with these huge knock-on effects to the U.S. economy and inflation, and and we're we're really seeing the extent to which this is a sea-dependent economy, as global trade is a sea-dependent trade. Yeah, as, as you point out in the book, that we, we tend to think about globalization as high tech flows and planes, you say. But but yes, those those log jams outside ports recently, uh, they, they make us realize that this is more relevant than ever. Correct. And by the way, it's interesting that uh, even on the even on the high tech piece, uh, a thing that I didn't know when I started doing this book is that 93 percent of all data flows uh, along undersea cables. So even when we move into the space of high technology and software and, and tech flows and finance, we're still hugely dependent on things that happen at sea or in that case, undersea. Yeah, I mean, that, that's staggering. I mean, I mean, it's almost 19th century, isn't it? Thinking about those undersea cables that the Victorians uh, were laying. But now, even with the internet and uh, modern finance and, and even our phones and the way that you, that you and I are talking now, it's everything is still dependent. More than 90% of global data, as you say, flowing through those undersea cables. 
it's quite astonishing. And along the way, by the way, I discovered that it was actually a distant relative of mine who was one of the first people to lay undersea cables for the Royal Navy. So there was a very, it was a kind of funny personal moment. There's, um, a, there's, a, there's a genetic interest for there you is. there. <laughs> it had come to it naturally, it seems so. Uh, but it is extraordinarily striking. But you used a very important phrase, which is 19th century. Um, because I have to say, the, the longer I worked on the book and the more I read and the more I wrote, the more it seemed to me that we had, sort of without our design, we had sailed our way back into a world that was very redolent of the 19th century and that some of the dynamics of contest over trade and the role of sea power and the role of navies, the role of the navies in the ocean sciences, all these kinds of things were sort of very similar to anybody who's read the history of the British expansion into Asia, for example, or uh, British-French rivalry at sea. And, and, and there's a lot in the contemporary moment uh, that reminds me of that period of history. Yeah, it was one. It was one of the things that I found fascinating, actually, that uh, you talked about that great naval strategist Mahan, uh, and you pointed out that uh, if he'd been dropped into the world of the mid twentieth century, uh, it's a world that perhaps he would not have understood particularly well. But the world at the beginning of the twenty first century is absolutely something uh, that he would have recognised and would have been wanting to analyse. Absolutely. Uh, and very striking to me um, to learn uh, by reading the very good scholars of the Naval War College and others who, who spend their time reading Chinese naval documents, how central Mahan is to Chinese naval thinking. So here's this American scholar from the 1900s who's deeply informing Chinese strategy uh, in the 21st century. And Xi Jinping himself has talked about the importance of going back out to sea. China left the high seas in the 1500s, and we're seeing China return to the high seas for the first time in 500 years. And much of what we're worrying about right now flows from that, the hypersonic missile tests, the quantum computing trials, all this stuff flows from uh, their decision to go back out to the high seas. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think back to people like Paul Kennedy, who who very often framed the, the 20th century as that uh, Mackinder versus Mahan, the great land power of Russia versus the maritime power of the United States. In, in, in some ways, do you think we're moving to a world where really it's going to be about two maritime powers? Well, it'll be interesting to watch because it, it does seem to me that China might be trying to do both, right? If you look at what it's doing with its railway networks and its uh, and its energy pipelines into Kazakhstan and Russia, it might be trying to win on both fronts. But certainly it is the case that it is trying to compete uh, at the level of a global navy, at the level of a blue water navy. It's got a long way to go to challenge the United States at the global level. It's already challenging the United States in the Western Pacific. Um, the Western Pacific, of course, being where 50% of the world's economy is located. <laughs> so it's enough of a challenge. Um, so I do think that the, the real front line of geopolitics right now is naval and technological contest in the, in the Western Pacific. That's, that's the real front line. And, and and in some ways, that that seems to me to be part of consciously, actually, what you're trying to do with this book, that uh, in many ways, this is an updated Mahan influence of sea power upon history. It is a little bit. I, um, I didn't start it that way. But the more I the more I researched, the more I read, the more it came to me that that was the right way to conceptualize it and to frame it. And as you say, updating it, because there are some pieces of this that would not be familiar to Mahan if he if he dropped down into the Western Pacific now, like the way energy flows as much as it does by uh, is found as much as it is by at sea and, and flows by sea, or the dynamics of climate change, which are playing out in the world's oceans, uh, those would not have been familiar to him in the same terms. 
uh, obviously the Navy had to worry about coaling stations and things like that, but the, the, the bulk uh, power uh, issues that we have now, the kind of fossil fuel issues we have now, would not be familiar to him and, and also play out in the world's oceans. But yes, the basic geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics of our time um, are well captured by his, by his thinking. Yeah, and it, it's it's one of the things actually that is really impressive and fascinating about the book that uh, it is not just a, a conventional geopolitical, geostrategic study. That uh, you really have had to be comprehensive. There's history, there's economics, but there's also engineering, there's ocean chemistry, there's marine biology. I mean, that, that really is quite the challenge that you've uh, undertaken here. It was, I have to confess it was a lot of fun uh, to do that and to delve into these issues that I didn't know as well. Um, there were times when it was challenging. Uh, the science of climate change is, is very complex. The ocean sciences are very complex. The marine biology was new to me. The engineering was new to me. But it was also just constantly fascinating to see the ways these things would come together. Uh, just one little fun example. Um, when uh, Benjamin Franklin was postmaster general in London, he did some of the earliest work on charting the the currents, you know, sort of some of the most basic work of oceanography. But at the same time, he was also studying hull design, and he looked back to the hull design of the Chinese treasure fleet of the 1500s and wrote about how sophisticated that was. And forward fast to the Suez crisis, and you have bulk shipping uh, trying to kind of survive the, the closing of the Suez during the, the Suez War, and innovating in hull design. And what do they draw on but Benjamin Franklin's writings about the Chinese treasure fleet from the 1500s, right? So you have these kind of crazy loops of history uh, and engineering and science and politics, and it all loops together in fascinating ways. Yeah, and at some of the research that you did, you weren't just sailing your desk in the library. On occasion, you were actually getting out onto the seas and exploring ports. And uh, I think I even noticed a, a research trip to Hawaii. So it, it, it wasn't all it wasn't all hard work for you necessarily. It wasn't all dreadful, no. Yes, <laughs> um, I was. I started off in um, the port of Tanjung Palapas, which is outside of Singapore. Um, sailed on the world's largest container ship, or at least it was at the time, the world's largest container ship between Singapore and Shanghai. I had previously spent some time in the container port of Shanghai, just this kind of vast uh, container port, six times larger by volume than the port of Los Angeles. Uh, I went up to the high north where you can see the, this kind of remarkable set of military installations that uh, provide for submarine access to the high north. And then, yeah, I spent some time with... Uh, Indo-PACOM, as it's called now, the Indo-Pacific Command, uh, based out of Honolulu, and, and spent some time. In fact, I just was there again and spent some time on board, sailing on board the USS John Paul Jones, which I which I write about in the book, the most advanced uh, Aegis-class missile destroyer in the U.S. fleet. I mean, it, it it is interesting to me that there's a there's a tension in the book between uh, I suppose what you might describe as a, a certain optimism uh, versus pessimism. I mean, you you do posit the idea that perhaps logic will overcome fear, the rivals rivals can cooperate on challenges like uh, climate change, uh, just in the way you point out that they've cooperated on issues such as privacy. Um, but but it's a possibility, you say in your introduction, but uh, it's, it seems to me that you're not particularly hopeful that that's going to be the way forward. Uh, yeah, and cooperation on piracy was, I think, what we were referencing. There was this extensive period of 
of Chinese and even Russian and Indian and American cooperation on, on piracy to protect the seas. So certainly it's the logic of it is we're all dependent on globalization. We're all worried about kind of rising oceans and climate change, and we should theoretically be able to figure out ways to, to collaborate, uh, or at the very least to avoid a kind of race to the bottom and a kind of conflict here. Um, but the track record is not great, and, and as you notice, I end the book with a slightly more pessimistic tone, and, and, and I think it's sort of infused throughout the book is a sense of the, the kind of tragedy of the moment, that, that we are watching, we're living right now, a turn from the possibility of cooperation and collaboration on these issues to what is already now an acute arms race. Uh, and sort of reflecting the, you know, the traditional patterns of history where the rearmament of one power, which in their mind may have commercial and defensive purposes, is interpreted by us as offensive, and or at the very least we are uncertain about Chinese intentions and react accordingly. And, and, and so I do think we're watching uh, a kind of locking in uh, of certainly an arms race um, and probably a wider deterioration of the relationship that's going to forestall the kind of cooperation that might have been possible. Yeah, fear and distrust seem to be more your stock in trade through most of the analysis. And, you know, exactly as you point out, the oceans are becoming the important zones of rivalry in that uh, great power competition. But uh, d does something like the new AUKUS nuclear submarine defence partnership between Australia, the UK and the US uh, really confirm what you kind of what your your original research in the book? That's something that uh, has, has happened in, in the last couple of months. Yeah, you know, I, um, I end the book by arguing for a new naval and technological alliance to deal with China's naval and technological rise, centered in the Western Pacific, but not limited to it. And, and AUKUS seems to me to, which happened two days after the book was released. Um, <laughs> You're a prophet. Me, well, <laughs> I don't think I can take any credit for that one. Um, although, admittedly, a lot of the people who worked on that were together with me at Brookings in the in the years previous, um, and, and you know, there's probably some like-mindedness that happened there. Uh, but it did seem to me to kind of cement that way of thinking about what's happening in the world. Um, I I anticipate that what we'll see is a further development of those kinds of agreements. In fact, it didn't get nearly as much press. But there was also a Japan-UK-US agreement. There's been a Japan-UK basing agreement. We've seen the further articulation of the Quad. So I think we're kind of watching a hardening of the naval and technological alliances, alliances loosely used in the Western Pacific. Uh, the real question is, at what pace does that go global? Because China's naval reach and its technological reach is not limited to the Western Pacific. It's not nearly as powerful in the Arctic or in the Southern Ocean or in the Atlantic as it is in the Pacific, but it's building that capacity. Um, and so the kinds of alignments that we've seen through AUKUS and the Quad, uh, to my mind, have to, have to extend geographically. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting because one of the real surprises to me, actually, in the book is, I mean, this is this is one way that America is responding to this heightened tension. Uh, but I, I was genuinely surprised that you show how globalization has had many benefits for the United States, but you say in the book not necessarily in terms of defense. 
Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's been a mixed blessing. Look, there are, there are parts of globalization which have been helpful to us in, in defense terms. I mean, for example, we have a Coast Guard presence in about 100 ports around the world for trade security purposes, but those obviously have other intelligence gathering and security purposes. But I do think that um, sea-based globalization has been the primary driver, not the only driver, but the primary driver of Chinese naval and technological development um, and, and has thus, in a sense, uh, torqued geopolitics around its axle and sort of contrary to the conventional wisdom where globalization is reducing tensions. In fact, it's been a, a primary driver of them. Um, look, it's, it's perfectly understandable that China doesn't want to continue to be in a position where its primary trade and energy flows are secured by another power. Perfectly understandable. Um, but it doesn't mean that we then respond to China's return to the seas uh, with equanimity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We had uh, Mary Sorotti on recently talking about NATO expansion in the 1990s. What, what do you make of the argument with, of some strategists who say that, you know, actually the United States should just recognise that, that Asia is somewhere that should be sorted out by the Asian powers, that uh, China's ambitions really end in the Western Pacific, and, and that by moving in and doing something like AUKUS, uh, we're, we're likely to escalate tensions rather than uh, bring them down. Yeah, ask the Japanese Navy if there were, weren't tensions before August. All right, um, so two points. One, I don't think it's the case that China's ambitions end in Asia, and I think the evidence for that is by now pretty clear. So it's sort of the middle of the book, part of what I'm doing is sorting through that debate and sorting through that evidence, and to my eye, it, you know, I come down pretty strongly in the side of those who would argue that China is putting in place the foundations of a genuine global navy. It does seem to have the ambition to be able to operate globally. That's logical. It trades globally. It has interests globally. Uh, the, the strategy follows, right? The, the flag flo follows the trade. Um, so I don't think its ambitions are limited to Asia, first of all. Second, sure, we could sit back and say, let the Asians sort it out. And in the eyes of restrainers and others, the natural thing that will follow will be the correct moves by Japan and the correct moves by China and the correct moves by Korea. And that might all work, right? And it might all be stable, but boy, it's one hell of a gamble. Um, and it seems to me just as likely that what we would end up with is an extraordinarily tense and conflictual situation in North Asia in particular. Uh, where 50% of the world's trade happens. And so the stakes are just enormous. And I think the notion that the United States was simply going to sit by or sort of pull back and let that play out never had much purchase, and, and it's certainly not what we're seeing. The other approach is the United States could really be in a mode of thinking it's sort of mano a mano vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. And then the third path, which I think is the right path, is what I argue in the book, and I think it's what we're doing, is to really bolster the alliance structure in Asia and to find the right ways to bring, to link the European and the Asian alliance structure, at least informally, uh, and to understand China as a global power, but with its power centered in the Western Pacific.
Yes, it's, it's fascinating that uh, that aspect of alliance building. I mean, it's certainly true that Joe Biden does seem more open to alliances than uh, his predecessor. But uh, but isn't it true that on the other hand, I mean, he has accepted President Trump's more forceful strategy towards China. Uh, and that forceful strategy had actually been opposed by America's alliance partners. So in some ways, listening to allies can also bring timidity and paralysis content yeah I mean you know when I talk about building alliance structure it doesn't necessarily mean sort of following the advice of one set of allies or another I mean the United States has to chart its own its own interests here but it does seem to me that sort of looking to where our interests overlap with those of our allies is is useful which they certainly do in the case of Japan and, and Australia um, how we link the Europeans in, you know, we've seen the difficulties of that. Britain has found its own path there. France is on a different path. Let's see where Germany ends up. Um, I, I think it's important to understand those pieces of the puzzle. Uh, China is not only playing in the naval domain and not only playing in the Western Pacific. It's playing in a much wider field. Europe has to be part of that answer. And so getting that balance right is going to be difficult, but extremely important. Yeah, I mean, rather chillingly, you do show how hostility could still escalate to some kind of nuclear exchange at the, at the worst level. I mean, do you think that escalation will come from something predictable like Taiwan? I mean, we've seen uh, recent uh, diplomatic back and forth and uh, warnings and so on, even this weekend from the, the Chinese towards the United States. Or, or do you think, uh, as so often in history, it will be something that just creeps up on us, something completely unexpected? expected that comes totally from left field. And and although it's almost impossible to define what left field is because it's left field, I wonder what that might actually look like. I do worry about both scenarios. I worry about a, you know, an American nuclear submarine bumping into a Chinese nuclear submarine someplace in the Luzon Strait or similar. I mean, not literally that, but obviously you can end up in situations where we're in very, very close quarters. We're in very close quarters almost every day with the Chinese Navy. Um, they're building their submarine fleet. We're building our submarine fleet. At one point, I saw an estimate that there were at least 200 submarines sailing in the South China Sea. It's a big body of water, but there's only certain straits you can sail in at depth. So, you know, the odds of a near miss, an accident, those kinds of things, I think, are, are quite real. Uh, could be another flashpoint. What I try to convey in the book is when you think about a, a naval incident, an incident at sea, this is not some British ship of the line exchanging cannon fire with a French ship of the line off the coast of Madagascar, you know, 2,000 miles away from anybody. Uh, this is complex uh, computational satellite radar missile system warfare, which can rapidly escalate to uh, large-scale warfare if we, if we get into a scenario where we feel like the Chinese are, uh, you know, imminently posing a risk to the fleet, our ability to counter that risk requires us to strike uh, deep inside mainland China. Um, it's a multi-dimensional response that we have planned for that. This is large-scale warfare. This is not some sort of minor skirmish at sea that would be looking at. It's large-scale warfare. Um, reference nuclear weapons. Both of us have nuclear anti-submarine warfare capability, which is part of the uh, war planning. So the scale is, is big here and the risks are big. And, and what I worry about right now is that the pace of deterioration, the pace of the arms race 
is not being met by uh, a pace of diplomatic investment in crisis management. Uh, I'm glad to see some diplomatic overtures from the Biden administration to the Chinese. Uh, they're not fully reciprocated yet. And certainly we're not building the infrastructure for crisis management and diplomacy that we need to be to meet the scale of escalation. And and technology as well. I mean, you, you show how the US has a technological edge in uh, what you describe as world-class maritime engineering and uh, ocean sciences. But uh, part of the problem is it's, it's an unheralded edge that uh, nobody's particularly interested in. It doesn't get headlines in the, the New York Times and so on. So, But, but, but this is, is where the US should be doubling down on its advantage, you, you seem to be saying. I'm extremely glad you raised it. it. It gets missed sometimes, but I think that it's, and, and the way you framed it is exactly right, it's unheralded. Um, and there are two aspects that you just pointed to. One is this extraordinary complex of ocean sciences institutes, uh, often backed by the Navy, sometimes founded by the Navy, often working in collaboration with the Navy, uh, but which have really provided the core of the science by which we now understand climate change. Uh, are vital to the understanding of ocean flows writ large. Um, we should be doing much more to celebrate that network of, of institutes and that capability and to expand it. It touches, uh, I estimated at one point that there are institutes or facilities in two thirds of the states uh, in this country. It's not only on the coasts. We should be celebrating the extraordinary extent to which we have a lead in marine technology, marine engineering, uh, offshore engineering, I think as we see ocean level rise, uh, sea level rise and the uh, attendant effects, that's going to be an extremely important industry um, and we should be really building up uh, that sector of, of our economy. Uh, it's Texas based which is, is useful in the politics of this, uh, but it's really a, a cutting edge industry. And, you know, the one thing that I really came away from the book thinking is that, that something like that is not a separate issue, that all of these things that you talk about, whether it's the, the technology, the maritime engineering, the ocean sciences, the, the maritime strategy, the navy, the, the, commer the merchant navy, that, that all of these things are connected. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a kind of a, a maritime web that uh, you can't just pick these things apart. I think that's right, and and one of the things that worries me, and it's been interesting since the book was published, and I've had several conversations with folks in various parts of the U.S. Uh, the Navy, it obviously worries them as well, that we don't see that in this country. We don't have a maritime culture. We don't, uh, we don't reflect on the history of, of U.S. sea power. We don't reflect on the importance of early uh, sea-based exploration to our science, to our, to our internationalism. Um, there are pockets of awareness. I was really struck uh, doing the research. I went up to the Port of New York and toured the customs facilities there. And some of the people who really understand how important this stuff is are in the finance sector in New York because they understand how much it moves global markets. They understand the vulnerability to, to ocean-based cables. Obviously, it's understood in the energy field. We're one of the largest exporters and one of the largest importers uh, in the world of energy. All of that is by sea. Uh, so there are pockets of awareness uh, of how important this is, but it does not form part of our political conversation. And that was, of course, part of why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, and actually, that's that's exactly how you end the book. You say our security, our prosperity, our environment hang in the balance. So, uh, I mean, the stakes just couldn't be higher, could they? I think that's right, and it's um, 
we have this debate about globalization. We have to reinvent globalization, I believe. We're obviously launched into a debate about geopolitics. We are launched into a global negotiation on climate change. They hang together. They are interconnected in ways we haven't understood as deeply as we need to. And we need to then invest in the the instruments of managing uh, that interconnection, the sciences, the naval capacity, the networks that you described. Uh, that's where we're going to be able to manage these issues going forward. And, and final question, how confident are you that the West, that the United States can get it right when it comes to the oceans? I mean, confidence would be overstated. <laughs> we certainly have the capability. We're starting to see some of the right things like AUKUS. Uh, we've got the latent engineering and science. Whether we have the leadership to pull that together, to summon the will, uh, that's the test ahead of us. So the book is To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Ocean Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. That's written by my guest, Bruce Jones, and published by Scribner. Uh, but for now, Bruce, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. We're off next week for Thanksgiving, so do join us again in two weeks' time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>